The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. It's these 12 randomly selected ordinary members of the public representing different shapes, sizes, colors from different backgrounds deciding together what is necessary and proportionate. What could be more democratic than that? And, you know, this idea that, oh, it's woke juries. Well, I mean, is it so surprising that a group of people with families of their own, children of their own, are concerned about rising temperatures and an issue that doesn't just affect one small area, doesn't affect certain types of people. It's an issue that will affect our entire planet, that is affecting our entire planet. Hello, and welcome to The Hearing Podcast. In our second instalment in our jury trials mini-series, Becky is talking to Audrey Cheryl Mogan, a barrister at Garden Court Chambers. The Hearing. Hello, Audrey. I'm so pleased to be able to talk to you today because you are currently practising the sort of law that I kind of dreamed about practising when I was at law school and a very young lawyer. So would you mind starting out by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and how uh, how you came to this part of the profession and what it is that you do? What do you practise? Um, hi, Becky. Well, thank you very much for having me. Um, and it's funny that you talk about what you wanted to do when you started out. Because um, in fact, before I came to the bar, um, I worked in the NGO sector for 10 years. Um, I used to work in conflict prevention and European human rights law, but I actually got started out in Toronto. I don't know if you can tell from my accent, I'm Canadian. Um, I got started out in a, at that time, quite a grassroots youth-led um, child rights NGO in Canada. And uh, it was very, you know, very hippie, very grassroots. And, you know, um, (laughs) my father, mortified, very immigrant kind of conflict, fled conflict kind of uh, idea that he was mortified by the idea that I wasn't a professional and used to say to me things like, you're never going to make any money sitting on the grass, yelling with placards, trying to get people to hear you. And well, it's just funny because now he thinks he's proved me right because I've first <laughs> become a barrister. Um, but uh, I think, well, in fact, I have the privilege to spend a lot of my time defending protesters um, and people who are standing up for purely selfless reasons, really, um, to identify what's wrong with the world and speak out against it. So, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's kind of my path to the bar. And I'm a criminal defense barrister at Garden Court Chambers. And I practice, uh, I do a lot of work um, with protesters and defending protesters. That's fantastic. I want to, by the end of this conversation, I want to have kind of zoomed out and had a wider discussion about protest law um, and protest cases. But I think that it would be really helpful to me and to anybody listening to this, if we can kind of drill down into the facts of a case first and listen to some of the principles. And I know that there was a judgment handed down on the 10th of December 2020 that you were very intimately involved with relating to the um, DLR and the Christian climate change activists. So could you tell us a bit about that case, the defences and the outcome, and then we'll kind of zoom out and have a, a wider discussion about principle? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, as you say, it was a Christian climate change uh, activist 
who had gotten on top of the DLR at Canary Wharf Station. Um, and what was really interesting is that was the first Crown Court trial that had happened post the decision from the Supreme Court in the landmark ruling of Ziegler. So it was the first case in the Crown Court that had come out after Ziegler had been handed down by the Crown, uh, the Supreme Court. And, and really what that meant was that the decision of whether a conviction would be a disproportionate interference with the defendant's rights under Articles 10 and 11 of the European Convention on Human Rights, which are basically Articles 10 and 11 taken together are the right to protest. Um, that decision was left for a jury to decide. So put another way, um, it was for a jury to decide whether that the, whether they were sure that a conviction in that case um, for taking part in a peaceful protest that caused disruption on the issue of climate change whether they were sure that a conviction was necessary. Um, so the background facts, it, it all came out of the April 2019 rebellion. Um, so it was uh, some time back now. Um, but these six protesters from Christian Climate Change, um, affiliated with Extinction Rebellion, um, had climbed onto the top of the DLR at Canary Wharf. And they remained there for about two hours. Um, you know, they prayed, um, there was a lot of singing going on, and they had some very big banners, um, one that read, don't jail the canaries, referring to uh, other protesters, um, and another sign uh, which read, business as usual equals death. And that was very pertinent to the location, because of course, Canary Wharf, financial center um, of London, arguably uh, one of the biggest financial centers of the world. So the idea really behind this protest was if we just keep going along, marching along, business as usual, kind of blind, like, you know, closing our eyes to what's going on around us, it's going to result uh, in death. So uh, yeah, it was, it, it was a very interesting case. They were arrested um, and charged uh, with an offence of obstructing an engine or carriage using a railway. Well, that sounds delightfully Victorian. <laughs> well, it, exactly. It was contrary to Section 36 of the Malicious Damages Act, 1861. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, effectively, it was about uh, obstructing this DLR train. Um and what was really interesting was, um, and, and like I said, it was the first case post Ziegler and um, counsel and Ziegler uh, it was were the amazing Henry Blackson, QC and Owen Greenhall from my chambers and Blina Negrali. And in fact, Henry and Blina were also in the DLR case with me, which was excellent to have them there. Um, and effectively what Ziegler had said was that direct action protests that are intentionally disruptive um, and more than just minimally disruptive um, still have the protection of Articles 10 and 11 um, of the European Court of Human Rights, uh, of the European Convention on Human Rights. So they still af are afforded that protection. And what that means is that any restriction on that right to protest has to be necessary and proportionate. And what it 
really, I mean, a, a lot of European uh, Strasbourg um, jurisprudence has said that time and has said things along those lines. But what was really interesting um, was, I think, two things. One was that arrests, prosecutions, convictions, sentences, those are all, the Supreme Court says, interferences um, and restrictions on someone's right to protest. And each thing needs to be looked at separately. So is the arrest necessary? Is the prosecution necessary and proportionate? Is the conviction necessary and proportionate? Taken separately. So even if the arrest and prosecution might be a proportionate interference um, with your right to protest, a conviction may not be. So each. So that was one really interesting thing. It, it, each restriction needs to be looked at independently. But what ended up being the real issue here was that the Supreme Court had said that this was a fact-specific inquiry. So, and they very explicitly said that it was in summary trials, so in the magistrate's courts, a fact-specific inquiry for a judge, and in Crown Court trials, a fact-specific inquiry for the jury. So it's for a jury to decide, to look at each, the facts, individual facts of each case, and decide whether they are sure that an interference was proportionate. So... Um, it was it was very interesting because it sometimes I think that there's been a I think before Ziegler had come out the idea was that this was more of a legal question and something mm. for the judges to decide, whereas um, importantly uh, Ziegler noted that it is in fact a fact specific inquiry and it's for the jury to decide on the facts of the case. I think that's why I find this case so fascinating and why I wanted to start with the specific specifics of this case and then sort of broaden out our discussion, which I will do now. Um, the, the, the reason I wanted to talk to you about it was because I had noticed a trend with the Coulston 4 case um, and with other climate-related and uh, insulate Britain cases. Um, there seems to be some very interesting trends developing around jury trials and we have absolutely heard people describe this as sort of just woke juries going off on a trip. Um, but I think there's something very fundamental here about the whole point of why we have jury trials. And I wondered what reflections you had on that trajectory. Am I even right in thinking that there's a trajectory there? Well, I think what's interesting is, um, I think some of the words that were used were dangerous precedent. Um, you know, But the fact is, uh, the decision of a jury is not a precedent. Uh, it doesn't affect other juries. It's what they these 12 randomly selected ordinary members of the public representing different shapes, sizes, colors from different backgrounds deciding together what they have decided is necessary and proportionate. What could be more democratic than that? And, you know, this idea that, oh, it's woke juries. Well, I mean, is it so surprising that a group of people with families of their own, children of their own, grandchildren, um, you know, are concerned about rising temperatures and an issue that doesn't just affect one small area, doesn't affect certain types of people, doesn't affect only people. I mean, it's an issue that is Effect that will affect our entire planet, that is affecting our entire planet. It's not imminent. It's not upcoming. It's not something that's going to happen in a few years. 
it is already climate change is shown the destructive impact of it across the globe um and so i don't i find it funny to think that that would be a woke decision or a woke um acquittal when i think it's completely unsurprising that normal everyday people think this is that this is an important enough an is- issue and that a conviction for these six defendants um was not necessary to me i think building on your point to me this is showing jury trials working in the way that they are actually intended to work so i've i've heard criticism of juries over the years um particularly in other jurisdictions um like america where jury trials um are held for in corporate courts where they may be looking at highly technical issues around intellectual property. Now there, I think that there is a real kind of question about the value of jury trials, but this, the um, asking 12 peers to give their view on whether something was necessary or unnecessary, the upshot of which is a person's liberty, may be dep- they, they may be deprived of their liberty or they may be um, restrictions or punishments placed upon them by the state this seems to me jury trials working as they are actually intended to do so um particularly i think in a sense and we've talked about this on the podcast before that legislation is a very powerful tool but it's also has a huge lag time yeah beyond you know you know it, we all know the problems with climate but it takes a long time for the kind of political wheels and the wheels of government and the wheels of parliament to get in place to produce the legislation. And what the jury trial is doing is almost saying, this is probably where you're going to need to end up. Well, I mean, definitely law is slow moving and people are much faster. Um, But I don't know if that is what they're saying. I think they're looking at each case individually. Um, I think... Jury, the jury system is sacrosanct because, again, like I said, it is 12 randomly selected people with absolutely no connection to the case, no connections to the defendants. Um, and they make their decisions on the facts of each case as they hear them. So we can't say what in a completely different situation might happen. And again, which is why the suggestion that anything would be a dangerous precedent is just utter nonsense. Um, but they, and I know, you know, being a criminal barrister, how conscientious jurors are, um, you know, and they take their oaths and their responsibilities very seriously. And again, you know, what could be more democratic than 12 people, different backgrounds, completely unconnected to a case, um, making uh, this decision, like you say, deciding on the facts of a case whether someone could potentially lose their liberty, but whether it is necessary for someone to have a conviction, having been in this case, peacefully sat on a train for two hours, um, speaking about an issue of such vital importance. I think if you really believe in trust in democracy, then you really can't criticize um, a jury being given that responsibility. So I suppose one question that I have, going back to that case specifically, is um, did you have to bring in evidence as to the emergency presented by climate change in order for people to make a decision about the necessity point? And if so, how how did you do that and what did you do? 
So that's actually a really interesting point because I think one, you know, it, it's a judge's responsibility to manage a case. Um, and judges are very concerned about having tons and tons and tons of evidence related to climate change. You know, I, I know that I have done cases in the lower courts, in the magistrates' courts, where the IPCC report um, has been uh, relied upon by defendants. Um, but in reality, what happened in this case was it was very much, yes, defendants can speak about this, but it's not really an issue of contention. The prosecution weren't saying that climate change isn't a real issue, isn't something that's affecting us. So when the prosecution isn't contesting that information, it's not really something that you need a lot of evidence on. But um, I will say that judges in courts have been good enough, I mean, have allowed defendants to speak to a level about these issues and why they're important. Um, and especially, you know, in our case, we did have one self-representing defendant as well. Um, so they were definitely allowed to speak to why it was so important and and um, address, you know, that the, these are honestly held beliefs. But again, that wasn't something that was really challenge. The prosecution weren't saying this is something you're just doing for the hell of it. Or, you know, there was no suggestion that these are just, oh, people that take up in, in any situation just to cause a bit of trouble. No, it was accepted by all parties. Um, and it had to be because it was clearly the case that these were honestly held beliefs um, by each of these defendants coming from their own backgrounds, very interesting backgrounds. We had a doctor we had a very, uh, you know, uh, probably one of the oldest defendants I've ever seen. He was in his uh, mid-70s, you know, a grandfather talking about why it was so important for him. Because like I said, again, you know, it's really our children and grandchildren and the future generations that are going to suffer the most. Um, so, uh, yes, I think uh, to answer your question <laughs> in a roundabout way, people get to talk about um, why it is they are protesting. They talk about the issues of climate change and they do address, you know, things that they've read and things that have impacted on them. So that's that that's been the real kind of way about how they've been able to bring in this evidence. It's like they've read this um, article or they've uh, read the, the panel, um, the UN panel report, and that's impacted them in such a way that's, you know, driven them to take this protest action. Um, and so they can speak about that. But it hasn't been like folders and lever art files <laughs> of here, let's let's read everything, because it, it, in effect, it's not really contested that this is such an important issue. And is it is it the case then that um, when people are speaking about what motivated them to do the protest in the first place and whether that um, that protest was necessary or justified or that there is that legal defence for it under Ziegler or in Coulston. Um, I know that there was a, a different legal defence presented. Um, is it the case that it is a subjective view? So I, the individual, I read these things, this impacted me, I have this honestly held belief. Or does it have to be an objectively reasonably held view? When it, we're talking about the protections under Articles 10 and 11 and the right to protest, it isn't really about the defendant's subjective point of view. You know, there's always an importance when we're talking about your right to protest 
that these are honestly held and, you know, why the defendants believe them. But when the jury's making their decision, it's not really about that. It's not like when we're running defenses of, for example, necessity. Um, and, you know, and, and that is something that does come across in climate uh, change arguments. Um, but in when you're talking about a necessity defense, like it was, this was necessary, I had to do this in order to uh, prevent people from death or serious harm. In those situations, there's a question of honestly held belief by those defendants that someone was going to die imminently. Um, and that's why they had to take that action. Whereas when we're talking about convention rights and the right to protest, the question is really, is the interference with their right to protest necessary in a democratic society? Um, and what you have to do and decide, that's a balancing exercise. Um, and what Ziegler said, as I've said, is that is a fact-specific decision to be made, fact-specific inquiry, and it's a balancing exercise. So each case will be different. Like, how long was the disruption? Um, were there other ways in which people could travel? And I think, you know, um, how safely was this done? These are all things that people can consider. I think, especially in, in our case, that was something we really focused on. They were on top of the Canary Wharf DLR line, um, but there were a number of other platforms. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of video footage and it was amazing to see some video footage of people, you know, getting off of the trains and clapping and putting their thumbs up um, uh, for these protesters. I know if I was there independently, that's what I would be doing. Like, yeah, right on. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, raise these issues. So, you know, that was all, and, and the jury saw that. So there, there's a question of how much disruption is caused. Again, even if it's more than minimal, it's still afforded the protection. Um, but it's this balance. That's really what you're talking about when you're talking about a convention, right? And the right to protest is, this balancing exercise between the rights of the individuals to speak up, their right to express their beliefs um, together and individually, um, and the rights of you know um, society to, in this case, just go about their business. And it's it's it was a weighing up exercise. So things like you know the fact that it was completely peaceful, you know there was um, there had been communication beforehand. You know, the police knew um, that actions were being taken uh, during that time. Again, it was April 2019. Um, it was the big X, uh, big XR protests. Um, and all those factors are weighed up against the fact that, yes, of course, people will have been disrupted. But again, you've got ordinary members of the public thinking, yeah, fine, maybe my train ride in might have been delayed by 10, 15 minutes. But when we're talking about an issue about you know, climate change, destroying biodiversity, rising sea levels, and the impact on future generations, maybe it's worth it for those 10, 15 minutes. And well, in fact, yes, it is worth it because they were all acquitted. And acquitted, can I just say, amazingly, on December 10th, which is International Human Rights Day. So I think the next thing I wanted to move the conversation onto is the trajectory of the law in this country on the right to protest because I know that there are changes afoot mm. and I wanted to, to get your view, maybe lay out what those changes are for the audience who may not be familiar with that and how that's going to intersect with the work that you do. 
So the police crime sentencing and courts bill, which is back in the Commons now, um, having had amendments from the Lords, will have a big impact on the right to protest. So um, of note, um, for those who might not be aware, there is a clause in it, I believe it's clause 55, which proposes an amendment um, to section 14 of the Public Order Act, um, which is the police powers in regulating public assemblies. So basically police powers um, around regulating protests. Um, And what they're proposing is it would allow officers to impose conditions um, that would effectively end protests on the basis of noise generation um, and where it may cause people to suffer serious unease. Um, And that is, I find, striking and really problematic because if you say that you're giving police powers to end a protest based on noise generation, you're effectively saying your right to protest is only insofar as you shut up or it's not noisy. I mean, protests are noisy things. That's the point of them. And so the right well, to protest. Yes, the gathering yeah. of any large amount of human <laughs> beings is by its very nature noisy. Exactly, exactly. And the right to protest in silence, you know, uh, there are obviously silent protests, but this it's really these lowering of the thresholds to give police more powers to end protests. And you can see that this is coming from, you know, the last few years of amazing, you know, really strong um, supported groups protesting against climate change, all the Extinction Rebellion protests. And let us not pretend that this isn't also because of the BLM protests um, in 2020. Um, and unfortunately, in my line of work, you know, there is a disproportionate use of police violence against young black and brown men, especially, but um, black people um, generally. Um, and it is really worrying um, when police powers become less defined, more vague, are increased in this way, because we know what will happen first. It is a direct attempt at curtailing protests, but we know also that the biggest impact will be um, on young black and brown people um, trying to uh, uh, use their right uh, to protest and their right to express themselves. So uh, there's another kind of issue as well. Uh, They want to define serious harm as serious annoyance or serious inconvenience. And again, that is hugely problematic, especially when you think about how Ziegler speaks about the fact that intentionally disruptive protests that cause more than minimal disruption still uh, deserves the protection um, of the convention. So it's quite an interesting move. I mean, it's not it's not surprising um, in any way um, because the um, the reports that kind of that were commissioned by the Home Secretary before this really talked about expanding things like stop and search in order to prevent serious disruption caused by protests. So you can see that a lot of this stuff has been building because of the protests, which is, I find, so undemocratic, given that so many people got involved and so many people were supportive 
And that means that these are such important issues, um, you know, both climate change and, of course, um, the impact of over-policing on black communities and the deaths in custody of uh, young black men. These are issues that thousands and thousands of people came out onto the streets to support. Um, and it is really worrying that this bill um, it, it is looking at a way of curtailing protests and increasing police power. So that is in terms of legislation. That's where we are. But if I can just say, uh, as a junior barrister, you know, I uh, still go to the magistrates' courts here and there. Um, and I definitely was doing a lot of um, so the magistrate's court is obviously where everything gets started and where you'll have first appearances. So when thousands and thousands of letters were being sent out um, to all these people, you know, who most of which will never have been in the criminal justice system before coming out of those protests, um, the climate change protests, and uh, especially in April and then again in September and October mm. rebellions, um, there were just sheer numbers of charges themselves. You just had these courts you know, dedicated to that. And they were just running, um, you know, running through the first appearances. Now, what I saw that was really problematic, and this was after the October 2019 rebellion, um, was that my instructing solicitors would be constantly in touch with the courts to find out, because there were so many, like I said, hundreds and hundreds of these first appearances coming through the courts. My solicitors would be in touch every day to find out if their client was, needed to be if their first appearance was going to be on that day and the dates were so up in the air and you know you would only get confirmation of this because you had lawyers really um and I would show up at first appearances to re represent my defendants and they would you know what you do there is you say not guilty and then the judge gives you directions and they set a trial date what I saw was that when people didn't show up so you know they call out a defendant's name and there's nobody there and no lawyer for them. I I was standing in a case and they proceeded to trial right there and then. And I, I thought it was a joke. I really thought it was a joke. And I, I laughed at the prosecutor. I was like, the district judge didn't just say, you're going to proceed to trial. Today's about a first appearance. You know, if it was if we were there for a burglary case or, you know, uh, any an assault case, you go to your first appearance. If someone's not there, you don't proceed to trial. But this was just a way of just kind of getting through. And I just think how many hundreds of people will be out there with convictions arising out of basically just sitting in a road to protest because they had no idea that this was even what was going that their case was even going to be called on that day or that this was going about. And it's really problematic when you think of the fact that after the Ziegler judgment came out from the Supreme Court and a lot of people, again, people with lawyers, had appealed their convictions from just being involved in the protest, like literally just being people sitting at Waterloo Bridge or at Oxford Circus or at Parliament, Parliament Square you know, when they were appealing their convictions for, you know, um, obstructing the road or obstructing the highway, um, they were, those appeals were not being challenged. So basically the case is being dropped. And so I just so worrying the way that the courts were just rushing through these cases 
And I, I am concerned about people out there with convictions. And a conviction is a big thing. It will impact you. I mean, of course, some people will look at it as a badge of honor. It's a conviction for a protest, of course. But it is, it is, it's something that will impact people's lives. They want to become lawyers, doctors. You know, it's not something to be taken lightly. So I thought that was one thing I noticed. And then the trend really has been, you know, there's, there's, that that kind of really charging thousands and thousands of people, which I think has kind of slowed down a bit now. Um, but I am hearing that um, out of the impossible rebellion protest, there are still kind of charges being brought for obstructing the highway, etc. Um, but then the kind of next thing was, you know, there was also the case of Jenny Jones, um, and that came out of the October rebellion, and that was where the Met Police had tried to effectively shut down the protests altogether um, beforehand. And, you know, that had been found to be unlawful. Um, but it's interesting to think about that now. In, and that was, you know, in October 2019, that combined with the fact that we have a, a new bill coming out that expands police powers. Um, and then I've also noticed that, you know, a lot of protesters are being charged with much more serious offenses now. So a lot of environmental protesters have now been charged with conspiracy offenses. So conspiracy to cause criminal damage, basically agreeing amongst themselves um, to cause criminal damage. And, and you know, that means that the cases are coming to the Crown Courts. Um, but it's also, it, it's just an interesting trend, I would say, not just in the law, but also just in the practice um, towards really trying to clamp down on protests. And it's a shame because the reason for this is because how successful the protests have been. So I think that now would be a really good time. We have talked in this podcast and, and you've mentioned a couple of times how protest is a part of democracy. Um, could you just expand on that in more detail? Because I think that sometimes we forget that democracy is made up of a lot of different elements. It isn't just the ability to go into a voting booth. It is the ability to go into a voting booth with proper information and things like that. So the so I would like to kind of build on that you kind of wider definition of democracy. The point of a democracy is that people have the freedom to be able to criticize when things are not being done properly um, as another way of expressing their views. So what was really interesting is, of course, after, and I talk about the success of these protests, after the big first April protests on climate change, that first real big Extinction Rebellion protest, you know, the government declared a climate emergency in May. And that's the point. It's, you know, democracy as you say, isn't just about go to, going to the polls. It's about being able to call out issues when you see them um, and raise the flag. And and it's because, like I said before, law is slow moving, but people are much faster and our views change. I mean, of course, there was a time when uh, homosexuality was uh, unlawful. There was a time when women uh, and people of color couldn't vote. Those were all things enshrined in law. And that's the point. It's that as our views change, as we become more, um, you know, we 
we become more tolerant and we become more accepting and our views on on the world changes um people go out and before the law changes people go out and say this is what we believe in this is what needs to happen and politicians they follow that right i mean that's the point of democracy one person one vote um and protests allow people to go out and say no these are the issues that are important to us and you need to do something about that so you know after the black lives matter protests i did notice that there were actually quite a lot of police officers that were then being charged with serious offenses arising out of their behavior uh, absolutely and i think people became a lot more able to call out and complain to say for example the police conduct authority when they're being stopped and searched on the basis of uh, quote unquote i smell marijuana you know and it's you know there was a, there was a cyclist who was stopped um and it was you know they recorded it and uh, they put it out and there was a, a complaint to the police conduct authority and it was all raised that there was this real issue about the usage of the quote unquote smell of marijuana as a guise to um stop and search young black men and all of that is coming you know people feel more able to speak out about it um you know more and more videos of when this was happening uh started and that's all because people had taken to the streets together to say no more you know we all come together to say that this is this is a problem and that is um democracy in action whether again it's it's from the BLM uh, BLM movement or climate change protesters coming together and saying the government needs to do something in order to um comply with the promises to to meet the promises that they made about um reducing carbon emissions um and and really dealing with that and again like i said because people came out to the streets to share their voices the the government declared a a climate emergency in may so i think i hope that answered your question no no um, definitely uh but it, it is a it is another stranded democracy and, and 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 i would argue the most important strand because it is the way in which people drive the law and people drive politicians so where do you think we're heading well i've been quite pessimistic about where the law is <laughs> heading and how the practices are being heading are heading but you know i believe in people and people will take to the streets to say that they're not happy and i mean even with this bill themselves there was lots and lots of protests around it and the fact is um that just like the examples i've given of the suffragettes um that people and protesters are often vindicated by history so um i have lot of faith that um the climate change protesters the black lives matter movement protesters um they will keep going um we will keep going um uh until real change is is had even if um as it looks right now um government policy uh and legislation um isn't as progressive the hearing becky i absolutely love the podcast episode you did with Audrey so so interesting and so many sort of connections to um and similarities in the Colston case when I interviewed Liam Walker QC again 
I think both lawyers and members of the public um, will be really fascinated with this episode because there's so many misconceptions about it. With both cases, you know, the, the critics would say, oh, this sets a dangerous precedent, what the jury has decided. But, you know, both of our guests, Liam and Audrey, have explained very articulately and very clearly that this is a fact-specific inquiry decided by a jury. So in Audrey's case, I was interested, you know, some of the facts a jury would look at is how long was this disruption for? Um, How safely was it carried out? Were there any other routes for um, passengers to, to go on the train? Were there other platforms open? You know, these are very fact-specific questions, aren't they? And only a jury could decide that. Another jury in another case could decide something completely different. You're absolutely right, Yasmin. And, and let's not forget, for those of us who are lawyers, but who have not practised in criminal law and who probably haven't touched it um, since our legal um, practice certificate days or earlier, I think that we tend to forget along with the rest of the population, what juries are intended to do. And what I loved about these two episodes is we absolutely got under the skin of why do we have juries? Why are they so important? Why are they still so incredibly relevant to today? And I think that both of those cases really brought that out. Absolutely. And I loved as, as well what you and Audrey said explaining you know what democracy actually is that's a really good question and what is it and you know you said it's not just the ability to go into the polling booth it is the ability to criticize the government that can be through protest and as you said you know jury trials are the absolute cornerstone of democracy being judged by your peers another thing I found really interesting Becky is the similarities between the two cases in the Colston case, these lots of people in Bristol petitioned for that statue to be taken down. I think over 30 years they petitioned for that. So they really tried through legitimate routes to get that taken down. But it was only through protest uh, during the BLM protests in 2020 that they had to take things in their own hands. Similarly, with, with climate change, how many um, times have people tried to tell government or other people about how serious this issue is and the threat to climate. Um, And again, through the protesters, the government announced and declared a a climate emergency the following month. So protests actually really do matter um, and they actually make a change. I think it does matter. And I think there's a lot of people will often look at a protest and think, oh, you know, these people are wasting their time. Um, But the reality is it is one of many um, ways and means of holding people to account. That's that's the the crux of it, isn't it? I read a book earlier this year by um, Billy Bragg called The Three Dimensions of Freedom. It's very short, highly recommend it. And the third dimension of freedom that he um, talks about is accountability. And I think it is so crucial and so critical. And everything from jury trials all the way through to the protest movements, they're all mechanisms that we have of holding the people in power to account. And I think that's really important in a democracy, isn't it? Is if you can't hold people to account, then are you truly living in a democracy? But then doesn't it make it more troubling? As Liam Walker said in my episode we recorded, you know, if the government doesn't like a decision by the jury, they're trying ways 
to restrict and curtail protest because they don't like that decision that was made by the people. Um, you know, in, in the case of, of the, the climate change protesters, they're trying to introduce a bill um, to increase police powers about regulating protests. So that's just going to make it harder for people to raise their concerns and to raise these issues um, and affect change. I think that's right. I, I think that one of the things that I would say about that is that I would, and this is sort of taking several steps back from that situation, is that I would like to see a much greater literacy in this country for the average person about what democracy, what accountability, what jury trials do, why they serve a purpose, how they serve a purpose, what protest does, how it serves a purpose and why it serves a purpose. Because I think that actually what we don't see, what we do see is the inconvenience to daily lives or yeah. the headlines or um, people feeling afraid. And what we don't see is the real understanding, the boring details, to be honest, that don't make a great headline because it's um, too granular. Um, those details are the ones that really uh, allow people to understand what the kind of the social contract is here, what's going on here. You know, one of the things that's going on in a jury trial, which I always think is really critical, is that the re part of the reason that you have the right to be judged by 12 ordinary people, and, le and let's be clear, 12 people who are not a part of the government, are not a part of the police, are not a part of the judicial system, um, they are just ordinary people going about their daily lives, is because the upshot of a criminal law trial can mean a loss of your freedom and an interference with your rights as a human being. And the only person who can judge if that is a reasonable thing to happen to you, we have decided as a democracy, the people who can judge that are 12 ordinary people from the Clapham omnibus <laughs> who are not invested in the system in any way. Yeah that separation of powers between all those people that you've mentioned, the institutions and juries, um, government, um, that is critical, isn't it? And there should not be any interference with that. So I think it's the job here of people like Liam and Audrey and a job which I think Liam and Audrey have executed very well in those two cases that we talked about. It is their job to uphold democracy, to say, this is a jury trial this is why we have a jury trial. And I'm I'm just actually incredibly grateful to both of them that they can come on here and they can really explain to us these are confined to their facts. They were very fact specific. Here are the specific facts. These aren't setting a precedent. To help all of us either remember, if it's been a long time since we have done a, a criminal law um, section in our training, um, or if we've never done a criminal law section of training, to remind all of us why we have jury trials and why they're so key. The Hearing. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, then please do like and subscribe, and we would love to hear any feedback or episode ideas that you have. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.